Hi everyone. Welcome to the lost generation outside of the mainstream. My name is William Hooker. I am a musician, poet, and part of this generation of artists. My goal with this podcast, which is being broadcast on its own YouTube channel and my website, williamhooker.com, is to introduce you to many of the musical artists that are outside of the mainstream and have made important artistic contributions to our culture. I have also interviewed producers of the music and many fans and supporters of this work. My guests are sharing what makes this art form unique and significant. I hope these conversations will inspire you to listen to the music, which may change you in the way you view music, which again is outside of the mainstream. Today, we're interviewing multi-instrumentalist, composer, and poet, Ann Davis. I hope to be airing new interviews on the first of each month. We are presenting these interviews on our own YouTube channel. We have so many amazing interviews coming up that you will be hearing in the future. This is The Lost Generation, Outside of the Mainstream. This is a story that needs to be told. See you next month. Uh What is the connection between the music that we're talking about and the music you've experienced and what is happening worldwide. Now, okay, in my I, okay ask, I got a good answer for that, sure. Now, now, now in my <coughs> asking that question, I'm going to ask you certain names. Okay. Sabir Mateen. Are you ready? Are you rolling? Okay, great. In light. Uh, Sabir is... Um, highly accomplished musician. Uh, his, his background coming from Horace Tapscott, for one, which is probably a rival to the concept and the uh, exquisite uh, execution of like a sunrise, the sunrise band. Um, and, um, and so in, to he, get him on the bandstand playing with the best of the blowers Hardly anybody can outblow him. That's for sure. I would say him, him, and, and when he paired off with Daniel Carter, or when he ever he does, or when he paired off with Luther Thomas, oh, forget it. You did, he had a horn section that that, that that no one could come in between, as far as uh, musicians I'm aware of, uh, whether they be European musicians with reputations or not. Or mm-hmm. American rep- musicians with reputations. Uh, we talked uh, earlier. We were talking about David Ware and so on. Mm-hmm, it would have been mm-hmm. interesting to see Sabir and David Ware pair off. I don't know that they've ever paired off before. They did a micro. Yeah. They they did they did. Okay, yeah, so I'm not. I'm not. Okay, so so okay, so I'm not. I'm not aware of oh, how they how they yeah, how they fared together. Yeah. yeah, but uh, uh, Sabir has been. It was hot. Close, close friend of mine for a number of years, and mm-hmm. and I knew him when he first came to here to uh, to New York, and he came with his partner Kusinatan Shuamun, who was uh, one of Sun Ra's favorite musicians, actually, an uh, alto player, 
In fact, when uh, when consent time passed, uh, um, somehow I never uh, liked to have anything to do with memorials or anything, but that was one situation that he agreed that he said that he would participate in when we had a memorial for him. It, it turned out that he didn't show up, he didn't come, but that was the, the that was, it really meant a lot. It really meant something. Uh, uh, one experience I like to recant when uh, around the Sunrise Band was Sabir. Was uh, with Sabir. Okay. Uh, and Sunrise had his first stroke, and they had a there was a huge benefit at the Village Gate uh, for Sunrise, and everyone on the scene was there. All the Musicians of renown that were available to, to be a part of that, and everyone was there for that. And the Sunrise Band played, and this, and, and they came out, and, and and John Gilmore was directing the band at that time, and he had taken over the band at the time. He told everybody, "We're just gonna, we're gonna accommodate everybody. Want to play in the bandstand? We're never gonna play free." And 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 it was Sabir and Kusinatan and myself. We came out in, in front of the band. We we stood up in front of the band. And started playing free, and, and you know how Marshall has this thing when he moves, he starts moving his hand back and forth, backwards, hand on his alto, on his alto, and he makes this, this kind of effect. And and uh, some and Cassidita started playing this, and, and 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 Marshall stood up, you know, stood up it, it, while the band was playing, stood up and and, and, and handed Cassidita his horn, right there on the stage. You know, the band was wailing, and then I, I never felt a more powerful experience on the bandstand with Sabir and Kusinatan playing together in front of the Sunrise Band. It's amazing, totally amazing. Okay, okay. I recall playing, I, I have, uh, I have Sabir on four of my CDs. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, this particular CD right here, that one right there. Mm-hmm. It's called the distance between us, mm-hmm. and Sabir is a part of that mm-hmm. uh, recording, um, and it was because of Sabir actually, uh, and Sabir actually sat in the same place you're sitting right now many many times, mm-hmm. many many times, and I knew that Sabir's contribution was the fact that. He brought to the music a very, very uh, knowledgeable, a very, very knowledgeable um, wealth of information regarding the music that preceded him, mm-hmm. the music he was playing, and his um, his overall method of playing the tenor. And I can remember... The first time we actually met, which was on fifty no fifty fifth and seventh, and he was playing with a group called Test. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was Sabir, Tom Bruno, right? Um, Daniel was in the band, yes, wasn't he? Matt Hainer. Matt Hainer. Okay. And Daniel Carter. Yeah, Daniel. Daniel. And and that's where I first met Sabir, and that's why I first asked Sabir to join me in my group. Well, see, before before Tess, there was a group called the Future. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> and, 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 and Sabir that, was in it. That was that was that was. Uh, well, I'll say myself first. Myself, Daniel Carter, Sabir, uh-huh. and uh, uh, um, um, Tom Corn played drums. 
Okay. Who was um who also was an artist, uh, and a, a curator for uh, for galleries. Oh, you mean a visual a visual uh, artist? Uh huh. Uh, and uh, Dan O'Brien played bass, and then also very often a part of it was Eve Packer who lived, spoke poetry a word of poetry. Uh, and that band was we actually existed as a unit for maybe two years. Uh, with actually getting gigs and you know performing as a consistent unit, and um, I made a lot of recordings that you know they were on tape, and uh, something that yeah. I'm working on to publish and bring that out because I have a composite of of uh, the, right. what we did right. and very worthwhile. In fact, interestingly enough, Daniel and and both Sabir and Daniel uh, talk about that band with a lot of fondness. Okay. So, okay. So, so they were, they really enjoyed what came out of that episode. Yeah. Luther Thomas. Know. Luther Thomas. What can you tell me about Luther and his contribution to this music? Well, first I want to let people know his name. His name is the Saxcrobatic Fanatic. <laughs> uh -huh. That's right. The Saxcrobatic Fanatic Luther Thomas, as he called himself. Um, yes. Luther Thomas, as far as I'm concerned, was. Uh, as I'm gonna say, he was he was he was the greatest, if not if, if only to be humble to say one of the greatest. Um, he what did he play? He played alto saxophone. Alto. He also played keyboards, piano, synthesizer. He also worked at Casio horn, which came out in the mid '80s. It was a plastic saxophone. That was made by Casio as a toy. It was selling for forty dollars in toy stores. I remember. And him and and Doug Walker, yeah, were the only people that I know that took that instrument seriously and really learned to play it seriously. And Doug Walker did a wonderful job learning to play that as well. But Luther took that and took it into a whole other world. Where was Luther you from? Know, Luther from, was from St. Louis. St. And Louis. he came he came to New York uh, along the time with you know he came with uh, right behind Charles Bobo Shaw. And he came with, um, mm -hmm. right after Joe Boy came here with Oliver Lake and Charles Bobo Shaw mm -hmm. and Hamiet and those Hamiet was come here came here with Charles Bobo Shaw a little earlier, mm -hmm. and then and then um, Luther came here with Kelvin Bell, Joe Bowie, uh, and that kind of St. Louis mm -hmm. connection. Yeah. Which, uh, and um, Luther uh, was a. a I, I, well, close associate, if not to say protege, with Clarence C. Sharp, who basically was uh, a clone or you know the second the second yes. double Charlie Parker himself. Okay. Uh, and and uh, Luther had a discipline to have learned all the music, and uh, uh, he was, as far as I'm concerned. Weight, image for image and weight for weight and pound with how you want to compare yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the best of uh, uh, not so successful. So really? That's how I see it. When did he pass you know, away? Uh, you know, people remember things by years. Approximately. And, 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 uh, and I have a hard time remembering things by what year things took place, to, to, to tell you the truth. Uh, it could have been like around... Late 90s? Yeah, it could have been like that, you know, ninety nine, you know, maybe maybe ninety eight, something like that. I Did remember, he always you know, live in the East Village? Always, always lived in East Village. 
um, he had moved to Copenhagen uh-huh. and, and had a high degree of success there. He became like the poster guy, poster boy for the Copenhagen Jazz Festival almost every year. Really? Uh, and because of the relationship with Iceland and Denmark, he ended up playing for the Queen, you know, in Denmark and, and, and playing, giving, playing gigs in Iceland and things like that. He was, so he was highly regarded. And, you know, he maintained his bad boy gangster image all through, which, you know, kind of like threw people for a loop a, a lot. He, he made this uh, kind of rock jazz funk record called 911, which is like, you know, the precursor of gangster rap or the, the epitome <laughs> of gangster rap. Full of all kind of lewd imagery and, and profanity and all kind of thing. But it's it'll make this American gangster rap look like adolescent, you know. Oh, really? uh, amazing things, really? um, and uh, I, I went over. I went to do some shows with him in Copenhagen. We did. We performed. We did. Wow. You know, we recorded over there too. I don't know whatever happened to the recording we did. I never came out, but uh-huh. we did uh-huh. something. And uh, you know, he was my my good friend, my my son's un- unofficial godfather, and yes. you know the whole yes. thing. He, I played his last. He, I played his last gig. He played. I played with him at his son's wedding. And his last record he made was um, was was on one of my records. What's his, what's last, his record. last record name? It's called called Jukuju, and I have a te- subtitle called Future Luther Thomas, and it's on and that one came out on the on John Zorn's label on the Zadik label. Zadik on Zadik, yeah. John Zorn. Yeah. Well, John Zorn's a beautiful cat. You know, he also happens to be my neighbor. You know, I, I live on Lucky 7th Street, what I call Lucky 7th really? Street. Really? You live on 7th Street? I live on 7th between Avenues B and C. Uh-huh. And all through the years, even though, like, back in the 80s, it was a severe dope block and all that kind of thing. Okay, okay. And the building I'm living in today is surrounded by property where, you know, it was, it was a building that we squatted. And it was a freestanding building in the middle of the block with two lots on either side of now it. Now tell people what and, a squat and, is. Well, a lot well, of people that are going to hear this are going to see this. I don't think that they really understand what a squat is. Well, uh, in, in, internationally, you know, you have, you have certain squat scenes that people know about. Say, like in in, in Berlin, in particular, where it was it was, it was there was a heavy movement. And then they had others like in Barcelona, Spain, and you had some in London and so on. But the New York squat scene uh, really originated like in the, out of the Bronx. But it was a people's movement where when the neighborhood has got, had gotten so depressed after the late 60s moving into the early, in the mid-70s, yes. that you had whole sprawls of neighborhoods and blocks and blocks of buildings that were landlords had walked out. You know, and and torched buildings for insurance money, and 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 uh, um, uh, there was no more city funding coming into the to the neighborhoods. The, uh-huh. the firehouses were forced to close, and the and 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 the, the sanitation was was put at a standstill, collecting trash and so on. And these let these neighbor these vast neighborhoods were basically allowed to fester and to rot away. Okay, and the persons that remain in these neighborhoods, that they're you know you end up having. A lot of artists that stayed there, and then they'd also invited like a lot of, not to disrespect any person necessarily, but derelicts. You know, your drug addicts, and, you. and, and your and your low lives, and your people that just getting out of jail. They're looking for a place to hide out. Now, like Seventh Street know. is Seventh Street has that history way back in the day. Well, Seventh Street was a part of that scene. The whole Lower East Side, from Fourteenth Street to Housing Street, and from Avenue A to Avenue D. Was all this Lower East Side neighborhood that was called Lower East Side before they called it East Village, 
and it was a highly depressed neighborhood. Okay. But yet it was a very vibrant scene where artists had flourished. It was the stomping ground to Keith Haring and Jean-Michel Basquiat. It no, was, but Zorn it was... was uh, back to Zorn again. Zorn, his, yeah. Zorn lives in the, in the building directly across the street from my building, which was the squat. Okay. And, and 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 on that side of the street, that side of the street remained relatively intact within five or six buildings together. And then on the other, the other side, there was a huge empty lot, and the other side was another empty lot. But Seven, that particular uh-huh. house is the same place that Elliot Sharp lives in. Uh-huh. Uh, but now he doesn't live there anymore. He keeps, the, but he keeps his apartment, his whole apartment as a studio. Uh-huh. Charles Gale lived there. And Elliot Sharp lives there. Anthony Coleman also lives in that same building. Oh, okay. So all these musicians live, and they've all been living, they're all living in that building for like 45 years. The same building. The same building. And then two doors down, after the empty lot on one side of the, the, the squat building, Evelyn Blakey, Art Blakey's daughter, lived there. She was there. And then on the other side, two doors down, two lots down in the next building over was Butch Morris. He lived there. Right. So, and then all through the years, you know, it was the stomping grounds for Dennis Charles and Frank Lowe. They all coming to see Frank. I was coming to see Butch and hang out with Butch and things like that. You know, so it, uh, and there was a whole um, what I call Lucky Seven Street. Is for whatever reason it attracted and retained all of these prominent musicians living in the East Village on that one particular street. So, what do you think is John's uh, John's uh, in John's contribution? To the music that we're speaking about, in terms of in terms of this lost generation, because I sense that no longer is John part of the lost generation. It's obvious. How do you see his contribution to this particular music that we're speaking of right now? Well, I think I think what happens is there's there's a mix up of what's, what has become like the downtown music scene, and you know, and that involved kind of come out the scene of musicians that all were living yeah. in, in the in the downtown area. Is he in. that scene? And, and, and I, I think I think he had began there, you know, and I, I think that musicians, some, some musicians were able to find avenues that were not only trying to describe the downtown music scene. He being you know, one of them. I think so. Okay. I think I think it'd be fair I to say so. I just want to so. narrow that down. You know, I think I think he he you know people. he, but, but John John being considering himself more of a, of a composer than actual like a, like a player. Okay. So so there's emphasis more of his compositions, and 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 I I, I went to a performance that he gave at the Guggenheim, of, of a premiere performance of his, and it was written all like for quartet. Swing quartet and piano and all this and that and the other, and I told John. I said, "Well, I said uh, I didn't realize that you know you were you know you concentrated so much on composing. We we're talking about piano scores that were the notes are written out and things like this sure. and complex music." He says, "Well, yeah." I said, "Well, what happened to say?" He says, "He said, oh, I just do the saxophone just to do something else." He says, "I'm really composer," and I didn't dawn on me that most of the time he's really not really. You know, he he's he's the type of a genius that he can you know has has execution on his saxophone and he can perform and hang out playing free jazz and yes. his uh, his well, but he's really composer. And 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 do you think that's and, his major contribution to this music, separate from the fact that as as um I think that I think yeah I think that will be that will, that will be 
I think but I think that will that will that will go over over the fact of his avant garde saxophone playing. I think I think I think I think he's got his I think he's got a high shelf of being as a modern composer because of, of, of how he's identified. For example, if he's being represented as a composer in MoMA, but he's not even playing his saxophone. People are coming to see him as a composer. They even they may not even be aware to even play his saxophone unless they research him and find out some of his more of his other story. Okay, you follow, follow what I'm saying. So so on a certain echelon he's 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 a composer of, of, of modern works. You know, and, okay. he's, and he's known that kind of way. All right. You know. Speaking of E seventh, okay. You probably know. Um, I'll bring up another name, Zena uh, Parkins. I don't really know Zena Parkins. What about Andrea? I don't really know. They live in that building too. Um, where, where in John Zorn's yeah. building? They they live there. Yeah. Well, I don't know who knows. Zena, Zena. Okay. I don't know them. I, what about Elliot? It's amazing. Elliot Sharp. Elliot's a beautiful cat. Okay. You know, he, he's 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 from Cleveland too. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. He's from Cleveland. Yeah, I didn't Cleveland. know that. Oh, yeah. Snap. And and uh, Elliot's very hardworking. He's a multi instrumentalist. He's also a composer. He spends a lot of time composing music. I suppose. See myself, I compose for my immediate needs. Like if I'm running sure. a band yeah. or something like that. Oh. But someone like Elliot or, or John, for example, you know, they'll compose because that's what they do. And they'll have stuff on the shelf, and when it, when when something calls for a composition of some kind, they have something to offer. For example, you know, myself, I'm like composing because, well, keep my hand in my practice of composition. Or if I'm running a unit, I'm running a band, I'll write new material to further what I, I what I know, what I do. But I'm not writing composition, putting on the shelf, saying, okay, well, here's my string quartet, you know, and if somebody ever needs one, I have two or three. Yes. You know, but yes, this is but this, this is how these guys are what these guys are doing. All right, know, so they're, so they're, they're like really composing artists. Like so, how way. do you see how do you see that in light of this lost generation, which has not been actually uh, actually recognized for the way we uh, we I say we me included the way we approach composition. Well, I'm beginning to look at how things you see have, what I'm saying? Have, have, have unfolded over the years. You know, in terms of our contribution, yes, I mean, yes, because yes, if, yes. If a person, if a what, what am I saying? Uh, it's a hierarchy of needs <laughs> says right, right. that if you do this and it is my language, then you will be recognized for it. Whereas. From what I can see from the lost generation, I got it. I got most it. of us yeah, are yeah. working. I got it for our for our it. units. I got it. I got it. So got how it. do you how do you how do you see that? Well, well, you know, I, I'm always rethinking all the time, like what's going on with the music, what I'm doing as a musician, yes, and, yeah. and, and 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 the fact is, like, you know, for example, I, I you know, I, I I sing to myself that that phrase from Hoochie Coochie Man, you know, well, I'm a Hoochie Coochie Man. Everybody and everybody knows I'm here. Yeah, you know, kind of thing. You know, yes, yes. And, and and you know, and trying to get traction one way or the other. And I'm looking at like now, an almost a, a sub generation to myself moving in certain ways, and I'm seeing how there's there's they're seeing light of day. You know, like any other generation is gonna take get advantage from. The labor of What's the ones before, on the time, of the, yeah. oh, and the labor and the sacrifice of those before. Okay, okay. You see, uh-huh. so and, and, and what I'm looking at now is like who who are the bookers and the promoters kind of interested in? It's not so much just 
the players per se anymore, how well you play or certain. It's how you organize your groups. It's how, it's, it's almost like a, a composer's world kind of way. And it's kind of, and, I, and if I rethink it, well, this has always been like the Euro standard, you know, of composition. You know, we, uh, just before we started uh, taping, we were talking about Mozart and so on. Well, you have plenty of improvisers, Mozart, Beethoven, those guys were skilled improvisers. They would sit down in a salon and play and make women cry and all that stuff, and they would just make up stuff on the spot, which we eventually turned perhaps into compositions, but they were also that. Mm-hmm. But, with their, but their claim to fame in, in, in their own lifetime and in, 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 out into the future was what they left behind. The written music. What they left behind, you okay. see. You know, they couldn't leave they couldn't leave a, an emotional improvisation behind where like fifty people in the room heard it and they said, Oh, the greatest thing I ever heard, we'll never hear that again. But they couldn't leave that behind, you see. So I'm almost thinking like this is this is kinda of like the model of what what begins, you know, what, what causes for that 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 foundation that, that gets etched into somebody's identity of, of history, somebody's identity of what's becomes important and fundamental in, okay. in, 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 in the idea of the compass, in the idea of the, of the music. Okay. You see. Jerome Cooper. Um, Jerome Cooper also was a neighbor of mine, uh, someone else in part of this downtown music scene. It's so fertile, the New York music scene, just between 14th Street and Houston Street and Avenue A and Avenue D. It's amazing. It's like a whole mecca world in itself, a whole capital and uh, whatever you want to call it, you know, in itself. Jerome, when I was living on 13th Street, Jerome was in the, in the, in, in the building. Also, it was a squat building on 13th Street, across the street. He was How do you there. feel about Jerome as a drummer? Because um, he was with the Revolution Ensemble. I, 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 he's a history maker, you know. I, I, I you know, what, what long, long time ago, long, long, long time ago, I, I, I stopped judging anyone who's really out there in the game, giving it all they they can, mm-hmm. being sincerely dedicated to their art, whether they're actor, it musician, you know, you know, dancer, whatever it is, painter, you know, anyone who's working hard at dedicating to their art, and they're gonna constantly always be, you know. In, in, in uh, moving forward with their talent and their skills and what, and what gifts they have, you know, to try to, to share. And granted, some people are going to be dynamically more profound and influence more people, more whether it's by their, their charisma or just their, their general attitude or their disposition or whatever it is. <laughs> but I find that, you know, Jerome was, had a sense of being able to add magic you know, to an atmosphere. Very nice. You know, and and uh, what? Let me let me pull out that one word. Magic. Yeah, he did. You know. What do you mean by that? Well, he could you know he could approach music and add his touch that would give the music a, a lift or give it a shine or polish in it. You know, uh, he's not an Art Blakey. And I don't think he tried to be. He's not a Buddy Rich. He's not trying to be. You know, like a basher and all that kind of stuff. You know, he's not. You know, he's not coming in there like that. Okay. But he's in there with a touch. You know, and everything is this. You know, and, and rudiments. You know, he can. He's got his skills. He's got his practice going on. But everything's about a touch and, and an accent and an ac- in, uh, 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 accentuating the music. And there's another kind of headspace for that. He seemed like he was a person who, from what I remember, he was a person who really traveled a lot and moved around a lot. He loved being in Indonesia. All the time, you tell, he me, was, tell me he, about that. Well, he he he, was, he lived there for several years at a time, and he would teach there. 
And he every time he would come back to New York, he was getting ready to go back again. So that's how I knew him. You know, he was always traveling to Indonesia, different parts, Vietnam, Burma, Thailand, you know, all, 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 all through there. He was, uh, he, he loved to travel that part of the world. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yep, sure did. What did he tell you about that? Um, for the average listener, for people like I, myself I, I, I guess that it, haven't traveled a lot, I, I guess that you know it, it, it matches it matches his personality that he found a, a fulfillment to be there. That people treated him well. He, I see. He he uh, always had some teaching position where he got paid well, respected wow. for 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 being a, a American. Um, Artists to teach it, teach there. I, I don't know if it was a college level or just what kind of, uh-huh. you know, you know, uh, guests. So you know how they have just different guest sabbaticals. Yeah, yeah. I don't know uh, quite what kind of situation they really were, but you know, that's that's you. what he, that's what he liked to do. Well, let me let me shift let me shift this conversation one second and ask you about this. Is this music meant for a wider audience or for the select few? That are at the edge of the cultural dynamic. Well, how do you feel about that? I mean, please elaborate. Well, you have you know musicians that are digging into academic meritous music this kind of way that requires high skills to execute or demonstration of of development of skills Uh and musical sensitivities. um, it's always impressive to anyone, you know, on any level. You know. But what happens is, I think, it's, it's like when you study music in school. You know, you, you, um, before you graduate, you know, you're going to have, um, you're going to study the, 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 the chance music, the aleatoric music, you know, the, coming from Charles Ives and John Cage and those kind of people, you know, uh, even going Carl High Stockhausen and all you have all this you know this experimental kind of music you know the Schoenberg the twelve tone thing you know but if you were to have two festivals on the same street mm-hmm. you know in, in the equally nice concert house mm-hmm. and, and 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 one is gonna one is one is a Mozart festival one is a modern music festival of Schoenberg twelve tone music okay. you know the line's gonna be all around the corner waiting to go hear Mozart. You know, and it's going to be limited going to hear Schoenberg and the twelve-tone music. Now, why is that? When this is the modern music, it's been modern music since 1910. You know, it's it's been the the apex of Western music in terms of like what is studied by all students before you can graduate. You have to understand it. You have to know it. Okay. You know, and and the whole idea is that when you get out of that school mode, you go out there in the world and you apply with what you know. So you do modern compositions, you might imply, you know, twelve tone, you might imply aleatoric chance music in your composition. Sure. You know, you might get out of doing music all together and start beating on trash cans or or, sure. or playing T V sets and, and, and add that to your sound Why and not? call it modern music. Okay. You know, firing engine sirens and sure. all that all becomes like a, a kaleidoscope of modern sound that makes music. Yes. You know, but going to hear Mozart for you know what happens is it it it, it falls on a, on a on a more of a simplicity, and it kind of pulls on the heartstrings a little more. But are we See, talking? Are we talking about? Are we talking about the wider audience? Because as far as I can see, the wider audience likes both of those that you mentioned. 
when we talk about the lost generation, that's why it's seen as a lost generation, even though it's not. It's because neither one of what all these people that we have been talking about, none of these people either are dealing with with experimental aleatoric music or or classical music, and very few of them are recognized for even being musicians on the planet. So what I'm asking about specifically is the people that we've been talking about for the last two hours. How do you see them as related to the wider audience, and who is this music for? This music I'm talking about. Well, uh, I think... I think um, and why? I, I think it's, I think it's, 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 it's interesting because I think with wider exposure, like in a, in a business sense, I think that more people would appreciate it and, and really like it. I think that people have to. It's, it's like it's like good wine or something, you know, good food. You know, you know, it's not gonna, you know, it, you know Nathan's hot dogs and McDonald's is is gonna take the cake for most people's needs. But, you know, they're not gonna really be looking for you know a gourmet dish somewhere the same way. No matter if even if it costs the same money, even if it's if it's not separated by cost. For okay, example. okay, I got you. Know you. Let me, I got you. So so, but, but but a lot of people may not be you know, or, or we got we got pizza parlors in town. And like we got two boots, which is like really good pizza, or artichoke pizza, which is a good another 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 pizza stand. Okay. You know, but you know, uh, everyone knows John's Pizza because you know whatever, and it's it's the common middle of the road average guy's kind of pizza. Okay. You know, it's not made with a cornbread crust, and it's not made with a better cheese, and it's you know that kind of stuff. So the same thing happens is you know you have you have this refinement. I think also actually. The idea of you know bebop music was more of an intellectual music when it came out. Okay. You know, it was it was a bit marginalized from what a lot of people knew as jazz music when it when it came out. Right. It, it it was a razzle dazzle of of, of uh, expertise of right. musicianship and composition and right. ingenious enclosures of musical devices and all that kind of thing. And 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 and, and as popular as it is now, as important as the history of jazz, when it was coming in its own time, it was marginalized actually. Okay. You see. You know. But it took somebody to expose that economically, whether it's the Baroness or whoever it was, right. you know, to open the club, Berlin, whatever it was, so yeah. people could find, wow, this is hip. I'm, I, I want to be a part of this. Then it goes to more people. You see? So, so, so someone has to, somebody has to be along those lines. I'm looking at certain artists that are coming through now that uh, are getting real advantage and real traction in their careers a certain way. Mm -hmm. and, and it doesn't happen without the business. So you have, you know, but they're lined up. They're not, they're not trying to get a gig saying, oh, I got this band, I want to get a gig. And uh -huh. I'm sitting on computer, here's my resume, or here's my, here's my blog page, or here's my website. Mm -hmm. You know, check out all the wonderful things I'm doing. Yes. You, know, you know, there's a certain professionalism that has to enter in between uh, the the business of the music and the artist, and that is the promoter or the agent or the booker or something like that, which adds to credibility. Now, you how know? do you do that if you don't have the resources to be able to do it like those people that are getting that amount of traction? It, it has to be a hustle. It has to it also has to be an awareness, you know, to 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 want to see that happen mm -hmm. and to go for that. Sometimes it's a matter of like just piggybacking and say, oh, so and so is represented. By such and such a booking agency, let me call them up and see if they would be interested in me, for example. And I've done those things along the way. Along the ways, I'm not being represented now. And and I dare say that last time that I had a record that was put out by a label, yeah. that 
had its pub, publicist uh, marketing, uh, marketing and all that. I got all kind of reviews, and I got all kind of comments talking about how great I am. Tell me about it. You know, and and and, yeah, and, 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 and but from the comments, you would think that you know they would put me up on their shoulders and parade me around town, talking about how wonderful I am. I, I think with me there there were I think with me there were a few things developing with my interest to 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 do art and music. Uh, for one, my my uh, my family, um, uh, my cousins on my mother's side uh, uh, were all artists and and, and, and and scholars and 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 accomplished persons. So I had that in, I had all that around me growing up because I knew who they were, uh, and um, uh, I my my mother played piano, but uh, she, she didn't always play it around the house all the time, but. Um, she wanted my brother and I to take piano lessons, and she was a terrible teacher. I have to admit, she, she's like she used to yell and scream all the time. It's like, I said, "Who taught you?" You know. So, but I have that, and um, you know, my world and my my home environment and, and my my na- neighborhood and, and, and black culture in America is always about. Music is so important, but it's, it's a part of it. And so I grew up in all that whole thing in the Motown era and that whole thing and I was you know, I was a I was a kid when the Beatles hit and John Lennon was just too cool, you know, you know, that kind of stuff. And I wanted to play guitar, you know, because I kept hearing this Spanishy kind of thing going on in my head and uh it turned out that uh, a teacher who happened to be and I wanted to, this is important to say that as a black man in my neighborhood, because I grew up in the in a in, in the city of Cleveland uh, until later, you know, whatever, but uh, I got older, but um, uh, he was teaching classical guitar, you know, and then I heard this idea, like, oh, yeah, this sounds kind of Spanishy and so on, so I stayed with him for a minute, and I stayed with that, and I became dedicated, you know, to study classical guitar. By the time I was 14, 15 years old, I was already doing very well. By 16, 17, I was already recycling. I had a reputation, and I was doing very well. I went one year at Cleveland State University. Also, my last year of high school, I got involved in doing, like, garage bands, and I got my first electric guitar, and and, and I built my own speakers, and we, they were all piled up high and, you know, all that kind of business. And I was in this rhythm and blues band called Sky's the Limit, which is like a Motown kind of band. It had the, the four guys, singers, and they had the dance steps. And the first band I was in, you know, the band, we all had steps and so on, and we played this way. Mm-hmm. And the band was very successful for, 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 two, for two years I was in it. And uh, we were a big deal in Cleveland, you know, at that time. You know, we played, a, had a limited engagement one summer playing the Hibachi Club Lounge in Cleveland, and that was like a big deal. Sure. And I was a kid. I was like 17. Uh, but I still stayed with the classical guitar. And, and uh, I went one year to Cleveland State, and, 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 it was, and, and I did very well coming through that. And, 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 and the dean of the school... Oh, God, you're you know, still there, huh? Yeah. And, 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 and uh, hi. Hey. And, 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 and the, the music dean of the school said, well, look, you know, you know, we would like to see you stay around, but it was, but it was described to me, like, if, if you really want to have a career in music, especially as a classical artist, it was important for you to go somewhere and find a teacher, because uh, that was what, you know, I wasn't going to get a background at Cleveland State, and at that time, guitar as a major instrument was not common, it was like, almost, uh, it came along the same time as like, uh, 
being a jazz band in college. Not every college had a jazz curriculum, so you had to pick and choose where you went to school. So that was how that went down. So it was it was described to me like you need to go and find a teacher. Where where would you go? And and so the options were Montreal, where they had a had a had a teacher in a music school program. Barcelona, Spain, London, and then Vienna was also part of the thing. So I, I looked at going there, and incidentally, the where I went was the same place that uh, Ralph Towner had gone through uh, uh, over there. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, and I went there, and, and I was trained as a concertiste. Uh, the idea of, uh, you know, um, we were talking, I think there was a conversation going on earlier about playing loud and the idea of loud and power. But I can equate that part of the training as a concert artist is to be able to play powerfully and, and loudly to fill a concert hall without a microphone, you see. You know, and that you know, and that's why you see the piano players and they're they're like bouncing on their chairs and things like that. You know, getting power at the piano, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's more difficult to play well loud than it is to play well soft. Hmm. You know, and playing guitar, the kind of thing. You know, like psh, pulling the strings and this and that and psh, all that kind of stuff, getting sound out the instrument. Mm-hmm. You can play soft and you know. And the people have to go like this; they can hear you, or they drop the microphone down from the from the ceiling so that they can they can pick it up in the room. Mm-hmm. I went to a recital from one of the teachers at the Third Street Music Settlement because I like to go and hear other players when I can. Right. And the guy guy had a had one of those modern uh, classical guitars that plugs in, <laughs> and he he was playing through the air. But I'm saying, why? What's going? We're only in a recital room, and you still insist on playing through an amp. I said, it's like you know, you may as well like. Started grade one, yes, you know. Yes. But but this is this is what I had my backup. While I was in Vienna, I had a very good friend from India who was studying conducting. He was a brilliant guy. He taught me all about discipline. He would stay up two or three days studying. We would go to the opera house. I never thought I would enjoy opera so much. We would go for like twenty five cents to students. You know, get our bottles of beer under our coat and sit up in the high in the top row and drink beer and listen to the opera. I saw all the operas and I never thought I would enjoy it that much. But we had fun doing it and we would listen to jazz, you know, on our downtime and with and all the stuff and all the Miles Davis, all the funky stuff and all and I was I was living in and in, in, I was over there and didn't know who Charlie Parker was really because my my parents were jazz enthusiasts you know right, right. we you know all the Motown stuff I grew up in all that but I didn't know half these guys I didn't know I knew Duke Ellington because he was a name and we had one Duke Ellington record at home or something like that my dad went to school with Nancy Sinatra I mean not, not I mean Nancy Wilson. Right. Uh, because uh, he went to Ohio State University. She's from Columbus. She's got her start singing in clubs around Columbus, and my dad knew who she was. So he had a couple of Nancy Wilson records, you know. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I think my parents had maybe 10 jazz records around the house. But they didn't have Charlie Parker. They didn't have Miles Davis. My dad said, oh, Miles Davis, he's too far away. He's too way out. And I don't know what he meant. I had no idea. You know, I, I knew Miles Davis in high school from the Bitches Brew era on, you know, but I had no idea he had a history, you know, playing with Charlie Parker at 19 years old. I had no idea right. he had a history until I was that old already, right, right, right. you see. So, so then I came into the jazz. So then the way the Europe society is, is that Europeans know all about black music in America. You know, it's over here that we don't know nothing about it. 
So I, I go to the record stores, the bookstores, they get all the books. I'm reading about all these people and seeing this and seeing that. I said, wow, look at this. I don't ever know in this whole world. It didn't even exist. And my friend Dave and I, we listen to all this music all the time, you know. And, he, and basically, he turned me out to that. So, so when I, I made my run being there, mm-hmm. then I came back and I started doing the improvisational thing, doing nylon string, classical guitar with an ensemble. That's how I kind of edged in. And it was like quasi avant-garde, quasi classical, you know, mixing in with the music. I, I didn't even own an electric guitar, you know, at that time. For like maybe two, three, four years. I didn't even, when I come out of school, I didn't even own an electric guitar, you see. Mm-hmm. And then I then I kind of got back into that, you know. And so then now everything I'm doing is like, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the blues are infinite. The blues is infinite, you know. Any any you know it, it, it goes everywhere. I hear you. You know it go and, and it, I don't have to go anywhere else. You know I'm not I'm not I'm merely not trying to apply a Euro sensitivity in my music the same way anymore because actually. Little that can be recognized, you know, probably a lot of these, especially horn players in the in this generation we're talking well, about. Yeah, it, 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 this idea of the avant-garde and this the free Including thing, like, you know, like Sabir, you know, the, the, yeah, Daniel, the, the, the aesthetic of it, the aesthetic David, of it is, is uh-huh. more 1930s German, you know, really? than than it is so-called avant-garde. Because if you go back and check out what they were doing, especially with horns, saxophones, and and and, and especially in the 30s, hmm, really? you know, right before the German. Uh, uh, what they call it, the, the like the German vaudeville kind of era, you know, cabaret, you know, the cabaret scene that was going on in the cabaret Germany in the 30s. You know, there's a lot of experimentation using these instruments, overblowing, you know, and you know, different, you know, you, you, unorthodox techniques. That was the whole idea of being able to find hmm. other alternate fingerings for these notes, for the, for the saxophones and things like that. And, and, and the, the idea of avant-garde, the, the, that term goes back to the 30s, the idea of avant-garde, mm-hmm. see. So, so um, they're not really aware that a lot of this scientific approach to playing the music is really going back to the European 30s, okay. see. Now, what happens is because horn players got to the part, this is how I see it, you know, in the 60s mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. being able to express this this. This, this this drive, this freedom now, you know, we out of here, we busting out, you know, we can't get it our way, I gotta blow you down with my horn and kind of thing, you know, the fire come out, you know, this is our frustration, <laughs> I'm gonna blow you away kind of thing, you see, you know, the fire come out, you know, right? I would, I would, I would, I would, uh, I, I would not, I, I would disagree with that. Okay. But I, the reason why I would disagree with that is because I'm starting to really realize that most of the people who were speaking about the fire, they weren't only speaking about the fire next time in terms of anger. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was a very, very intellectual, philosophical way of looking at playing. Okay. I'll just name one. Archie okay. Shepp, for okay. example. People thought he was the most most angry person on earth. They don't realize, and he's probably your neighbor. You well, I, I, yeah, I don't know. You told oh, me. Oh, you, told, oh, you, told, okay. you told me. You told but me. Yeah, I'm going yeah. to say, but I just think that I just think that um, what you say is is of such value because then I get a perspective from someone that has not not only uh, you haven't lived only here, so you see it in a lot of different you see it in a different way, and that's very important. That's very important because I think that through the course of time, 
that we're going to be doing this. I am going to be speaking to people that have so many different perspectives about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, I think that... That's going to be really interesting. I, 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 I think so. Thank you for tuning in. In months ahead, you will have the opportunity to hear from many more Lost Generation artists and supporters. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to hear upcoming episodes.